as the family of God here at Oasis Church. I thank you that you're working in our hearts and giving us a renewed passion to see the gospel of Jesus Christ go into our community and beyond. Lord, I thank you for the people of this church who have chosen to uh, start thinking and writing down names of people that they would pray for and consider joining uh, in evangelizing, bringing the gospel to them. Uh, I pray that the relationships, Lord, will continue to grow as they have been between our prayer partners, and already we've heard so many good reports of how you're working in people's lives. So, Lord, as we listen to your word this morning in this sermon, may you further encourage our hearts to do this work that you've called us to do, that we may be those who go out with boldness, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that it is salvation for all who believe. Do that work for us, Lord, in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've talked about now for the last few weeks evangelism, and um, one of the things that uh, I've been talking about, some of you were in our planning meeting when we had that a few uh, back in September, and there's a goal overall, which is to try to get new people to believe in Jesus, and we can't do that work. God can do that work, but he's chosen to use people as part of that work. Uh, as he draws people to himself, he uses uh, people that, are, that, that he has chosen to bring his gospel forth. So we want to be part of that, right? And so we decided that coming up in December, as we do the Advent season, um, we're going to have four, those four Sundays of Advent with a very special focus on inviting folks to come in. So we're going to have some nice invite cards for you to give to people, and we're going to encourage you to uh, be praying for people in your life. They might be neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, students that you're at school with, any of those things, and pray for them, and then also not just pray for them, but actually invite them to come. And and that's the reason we put out that advent candle, the Christ candle uh, earlier. It's supposed it's going to serve as a reminder to us each Sunday hopefully until the advent season um, that we are looking forward to seeing God change people's lives through the gospel and then that's through the people of Oasis Church and we're so excited about that. So, in that uh, vein, we're beginning a 40 days of prayer starting this uh, today, this Sunday. Uh, we've already, many of us, been praying, and I'm thankful that many of you have participated in that already, but we're going to just push in a little harder to pray now uh, for the next 40 days. And the reason is it's approximately 40 days until the next, uh, the first Sunday of Advent, which is December 3rd. Yes, it's coming up faster and faster. Uh, so we're going to pray. And I was thinking of lots of ways that we could maybe encourage you and... Um, I chose to, uh, some of you have listened to the Truth Trek podcast, which, um, which I've been doing now for uh, a few months. And uh, so there's going to be a bonus episode each Sunday that'll come on Truth Trek, uh, where I'll be leading in some thoughts and a prayer uh, for you to join along with. And so some of you had expressed you, um, you're maybe not familiar with podcast apps and all of that. So I'm happy to tell you that we now have a player on the Oasis website, and I think it's in a couple places on there. So you can actually just go to the website and play it right on there, oasisfl.org. So uh, take advantage of that. So at 1 o'clock today, that podcast should go live, and uh, you'll be able to listen to that and pray along with, with that 
Um, share it with others, too. It's, uh, the 40 days of prayer is not just for Oasis Church. Let's encourage other people that we know that go to faithful churches that you should be doing the same thing. You should be praying also that the Lord would put it on your heart to do evangelism. So let's, let's do that. So in that context, we're going to begin our sermon this morning, which is uh, From Death to Life, A Prayer for Revival. Um, and we're going to be looking at John 11, which is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And so we're going to talk about life after the resurrection. And the big idea for this message is that Jesus not only saves us from eternal death, he gives us eternal life. Um, Jesus um, learns of Lazarus' sickness. So we're not going to look at the entire passage here. I'm going to focus on certain parts of it. But just so you know, and, and some of you have read it many times or heard it preached, um, but he learns about it, Lazarus' sickness, but he doesn't go immediately or remember the story, and he tells his disciples it's, this will not result in death. Um, and the disciples sort of urge him not to go. He's already causing a lot of people to be opposed to him. Jesus is becoming, there's already some plots and stuff uh, stewing for so the disciples worry that he's going to get stoned. Um, and they tell, he tells his disciples first while Lazarus is sleeping, then he explains that he's actually died. And Thomas says, let us go that we may die with him. And it's important to remember, you know, Thomas gets a bad rap, the doubting Thomas, you know. But actually, this statement of Thomas is, uh, I take it to mean more like, hey, if they're going to go and kill us, if we go to, to where Lazarus is, let him kill us. We're following Jesus. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the way I take that passage to mean. So I want to start by reading uh, John 11, starting at verse 17, and then down to verse 27. And then we'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll read some more from that passage. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So a a few things that... I want to talk about that are not the main focus, but just uh, um, some things that I think are, are good for us to think about. Um, one of them is um, kids across the uh, nation and f- across the decades when they've been told they had to pick a verse to memorize for next, year, next week's Sunday school class, one of the most gone-to verses for kids is what? Jesus wept, the shortest, shortest verse in the Bible. Um, but some of you might have been that kid that said, that's my verse right there. 
And if it is, and it's stuck in your mind all these years, I think it's going to mean a little more to you this morning. Because if we have a heart after Christ, then we will weep as he wept for the things he wept for. Weep for the death that sin causes in our own lives. We'll weep for the death that sin causes in the church. We'll weep for the death that sin causes in the world. And if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Now, we must believe God can do all things, and we must believe God hears, and we must believe in him, not in our words. So I'm going to talk for a moment about nagging. (laughs) Nagging is not the preferred method for most people to get something to get someone to do something that we hope that they would do. Nor is nagging the preferred method of getting God to do something. The dictionary says nagging is constantly harassing someone to do something. Now, I didn't say nagging never works. Certainly nagging or constantly harassing someone to do something will sometimes work. Jesus even spoke in some parables about this. He gave a parable where a woman unceasingly goes to the judge to get justice for her case, and eventually the judge gives in, not because he is righteous, but just to avoid future harassment from this lady. And another parable is about how if you had a guest and you had nothing to feed the guest, you would even wake up your friend next door in the middle of the night and your persistence in asking will eventually cause your friend to get up and give you some bread to serve to your guest. In both cases, the nagging pays off because the person nagging gets the results they want. However, if a relationship is built upon a true and deep love, nagging will have no part of it. In a truly loving relationship, we would want to do something, not do it begrudgingly. But there are two parties in nagging. The one nagging may be violating 1 Corinthians 13, which says love does not insist on its own way. And the one being nagged is perhaps being nagged because they are not loving someone else sacrificially. Jesus does point out that nagging works in the two parables I mentioned. And we will find that while Jesus does point out that persistent leads to results with those otherwise unwilling to help us, in our prayers, that persistence is not to nag God in the sense that he gets so tired of us that he will answer our prayer to get us off his back. But instead, while Jesus is pointing out that persistence gets results, he's not saying we should be a bunch of nags who pester others until we get our, other, to get our own way. In other words, what we would call nagging is not the preferred way of getting others to do as we would like, and it's not the preferred way to to get God to do as we like. But instead, we should work on our relationships and strive for a heart that would serve others without needing to nag. And you'll find several Proverbs, if you look, that speak about how discouraging life is with a nagging person. In Colossians, Paul said that fathers should not exasperate their children. And one possible understanding this is that fathers are not to be nagging their children. So whatever we do, we do not want to take those parables about persistence and say they justify nagging. Instead, we should learn something about persistence as it relates to prayer. If you want to raise your prayers from the dead, you may need to reevaluate and redefine your prayer life. Jesus is our ultimate example in everything, and when it comes to prayer, 
he's our example as well. So again, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. We must believe God can do all things. We must believe God hears, and we must believe in him, not our words. So now let's move to the second, uh, the last part of the story of Lazarus, starting in verse 38. It continues and says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, said to them, unbind him and let him go. So the first point I want to talk about is that we must believe that God can do all things. Jesus reminds Martha of something he'd said earlier to her, that if she believed, she would see the glory of God. Now, we see that one of the great important truths of life in the faith is that we must not stop at mere acknowledgement of the truth, but we must truly believe. And what do I mean by that? That we must not stop at mere acknowledgement, but to move on to true belief. Well, Think for a moment about someone who's working as a boat salesperson. And you go to look at the boats he's selling, and he recites all of the company sales points, the warranty, the features, all of that. He perfectly outlines everything the company's told him to say. And yet, imagine in his heart, he doesn't really believe in the product. Would that not affect his testimony to the potential customer? Especially if the customer later finds out he, he floats on a different brand of boat than what he sells. Wouldn't most people detect he's not really on board with his product being the best, as the sales literature says? I knew a lady once who was a sales manager at a large car, car dealership. And this dealership sold one brand, and she would sing the praises of that car brand, and it seemed like she was a true believer in that brand. But then a new opportunity came for her. Now she, couldn't, she would get an opportunity and offer for a job that not just the sales manager, she was going to be the manager of the whole dealership, but it was a totally different brand. And I, I asked her how she could do that. It must be so difficult to have been enthusiastically representing one brand and now have come to do the same thing for a totally different brand. And she just shrugged and said, well, you know, you love the one you're with. In other words... She was never convinced the first brand was the best. She was simply doing her job, selling what she was hired to sell. But somehow that jarred me. You see, for her, she merely acknowledged that whatever brand she was selling was the best, but she didn't believe it. Some people do that with religion as well. They go gung-ho on something until something shinier and brighter comes along. As Christians, we must be true believers, not mere confessors. 
Now, I have friends that pastor denominations of what are called sometimes confessing churches. And they teach and recite creeds. And I actually think that's really good. I sometimes think we could do more of that. But confessing by itself may make you fit into a group. It may make you feel that you're part of something. But there are all kinds of confessing groups. I used to be in the American Legion, and at the meetings, you recite a pledge not only to the flag, but also to the American Legion. And at other organizations of a civic nature, there are things recited in a religious way. In other words, they say them just religiously, and they, they, they make a part of their um, liturgy, so to speak. And yet, for most of those people, it's simply something they say at every meeting. We don't want to be that way with our faith. If we recite the Lord's Prayer, it ought to have meaning. If we were to learn the Westminster Catechism or the Apostles' Creed, it shouldn't be something we merely acknowledge, but something we believe. Jesus is not merely telling Martha that if she simply would acknowledge him, she would see the glory of God. He said if she believed. Peter in Acts 2 said, Repent and be baptized To the Philippian jailer, he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus commanded that we believe in him. And in Mark 16, 16, he said, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Friends, we must be believers. Be careful never to get to the point where you forget the main things. When that lady in the car business told me she just loves the one she's with, something bothered me about that. And I think what bothered me is she was just really an actress putting on a show. And really, that's what the hypocrite does. The very word hypocrite means someone who acts out a part. And in the context of faith, a hypocrite is one who confesses to something they neither believe in nor live out. So this, our first point, is so important that we must believe. If we truly believe, we will see the glory of God. Our second point is connected to the first. We must believe that God can do all things, but we also must believe in our prayers that God hears us. Now, Jesus does a short prayer here, and this prayer is for the benefit of others around him. He actually says so. He points out in verses 41 and 42 that he knows that God hears his prayers, but he's saying these things aloud to increase their faith. Specifically, he's doing it so that they may believe. On our first point, you may have been wondering, how can I believe? I can't just muster up belief. I need some help. And here Jesus is offering help to those around him, help to believe. And what is the help? His words. He's praying out loud so they will hear it and have their faith increased. So how can a Christian today have their faith increased? By hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And this is why Jesus thought it would be helpful to pray out loud. And this is how Christians can help others in their faith as well, by praying together, encouraging each other with Scripture. And that is one of the great purposes of the church, which is not a building, by the way, but the church is people who are brought together by God's plan to live out their faith together. So... If you were thinking to yourself, well, that's great, I need to believe, but I can't just turn on a switch and believe, I have good news. 
You're right. You can't just decide to believe because it's God through his Holy Spirit who brings that belief and his method is through the preaching of his word. Reading it yourself is helpful. It will make a difference as well. I encourage you again and again, read the Bible every day. But the proclamation of the gospel is of utmost importance in God's plan to save sinners. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People have argued that preaching has run its course. That in a modern society, there's better ways to reach, reach people. You know, have a, have a good movie with a short message at the end, and a, or a carnival, or whatever. And while any of those may be used in some way by God, the primary method to bring faith to the faithless and believers belief to the unbeliever is through the preaching of the word of God. Yet this is folly to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then a little further down, Paul wrote, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It worries me that so many churches and pastors are convinced that if they take the wisdom of the world in marketing or designing their buildings like they're a business and not a family, have neglected, many of them, their time that should be spent focused on the teaching and preaching of God's word. The method to reach the lost has not changed from, since the church began. Preaching means to proclaim, to boldly speak, to loudly declare. And we hear people say things like, oh, don't preach at us, just talk to us. I literally had a guy say to me one time, hey, pastor, you use so much scripture. Can't you just read a verse or two and then talk to us? Or others will say it should be like a classroom where there's interactive time and no one wants to just sit and listen. They want to be participants. Yet, Every major time of great evangelistic outpouring in the church history, every great move of people where many people have come to Christ in the entire history of the church has not been based upon the attraction of the ministry or the speaker or anything else. It's been based upon the clear preaching of the word of God. Jesus knew that his words would stir faith in the people who were about to witness the miracle. And so he prays in this public manner, reminding the people right before their eyes uh, that the miracle is coming from God. The power of the miracle is from God. And he is declaring to them that a living God hears prayers. He's declaring that this same living God is the one who sent him, and he's about to show them something as further proof. The people already know something about Jesus. They know him as teacher, healer. Some have even bore witness that he's the son of God. But now we will see his true power even over death. Even over death. Jesus knows his prayers are heard. And he wants us to know that our prayers can be heard as well. He said to Martha, if she would believe, she would see the glory of God. 
we are given the same promise. He said that the Father hears him. And we're given that promise as well. And now he is about to show that our belief is not to be in our many words, but in the power of God. Jesus doesn't nag God. He doesn't spend a day or three days reciting the Torah or anything like that. He isn't trying to win a poetry contest with his great wording. He speaks simply. Lazarus, come out. Jesus confesses the truth. He is not afraid of the truth. But when it comes time to do one of the greatest miracles up to that point, he just speaks simply. And his command is obeyed. Jesus did not need an elaborate prayer. He could have used one word, come. Lazarus would have come. But Jesus did not have to nag the Father to get Lazarus out of the grave. He didn't have to recite many prayers because he already had a trusting and loving relationship with his Father. He knew the Father's will. He spent many hours in prayer. He lived a life of complete devotion. And so when it came time for serious business to be done in this case, he didn't need to heap up words. He spoke simply. Our faith must not be in our many words. We must not stir up emotion by our great delivery of those same words. The truth of the matter is some of the biggest hypocrites I've ever seen in my church life had some of the most beautiful and eloquent public prayers that you'd ever hear. Our faith is not stirred by the words of men at all. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ Hearing that word will give us the faith we need to believe so that we can see the glory of God. Hearing that word will help us to believe that God hears our prayers and hearing that word will do more for our faith than us speaking a million words of fancy prayers. And how did Jesus say to pray? In Matthew chapter 6, here's what he said. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord's Prayer is simple. Acknowledge God as holy, ask for his will, ask for daily provision, ask forgiveness, ask help to forgive others, ask for help in fighting temptation. It's very simple. Don't heap up empty praises. Jesus did not need to nag in order to have his prayer heard and answered by God. Why? Because he already had a perfect and loving relationship with him, and he never prayed contrary to God's will. He did not pray insisting on his own way. We should want our relationships to be like that. Whether in our families, in the church, or with God, we should strive to have the kind of relationships that are nag-free. Because we have a deep love and concern and put each other above ourselves. 
God wants us to have complete trust in him just as Jesus did. He wants us to know his will so that when we pray, we are praying in accordance with his will. The way we can see this happen is through the word of God. And when we receive the word of God, the spirit of God bears witness to the truth of it. And we can know the truth and the truth will set us free. So are you short of belief today? Is it your desire to see the glory of God and yet you say to yourself, I just don't believe in full. God has provided a way for your faith to be increased. He says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if you lack faith, listen to the word of Christ. Primarily through teaching and preaching, and that is greatly enhanced through your own study and reading. If you want your faith increased, then give yourself more opportunities to hear the word of Christ. Jesus said to Martha, she simply needed to believe. And Jesus had a relationship of full trust. So if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So we must believe God can do all things. We must believe God hears. And we must believe in him, not in our words. And I want to read the end again. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So finally, after teaching many things from the moment he heard of Lazarus being sick until this moment, Jesus displays his power over death and over the grave. And you can only imagine the power this miracle had in increasing the faith of those who were already following him and increasing the sense of urgency of those who hated him. In the aftermath of this miracle, the plot to kill Jesus really picks up. What power! What a Savior! The one who can defeat physical death and restore health. And yet this miracle, as wonderful as it is, pales in comparison to the miracle of bringing to life a soul that was spiritually dead. Thank God that this is a miracle that Jesus continues to perform today. His once-for-all sacrifice continues to bear fruit. With every salvation, Jesus is glorified. Oh, yes, God was glorified. No doubt about it, God was glorified when Lazarus walked out of that tomb. But how much more is he glorified when a sinner is saved? We often tell new converts that when they, are, then when they were saved, that heaven rejoiced. And this is the witness of Scripture. And this may humble us a little, but it's important for us to understand when heaven rejoices because a sinner repents, they aren't rejoicing primarily for that person. That might sound jarring to you. We shed tears of joy when we know someone came to Christ. We're truly thankful to see a person snatched from hell. But that is not the main reason that heaven rejoices when a sinner is saved. Heaven rejoices because Christ is glorified. When a sinner is saved, the excitement is not so much for that person as excitement and the power and plan of God that saved that person. The rejoicing of heaven when a sinner is saved is rejoicing for the one who saved. That's why they cry, worthy is the lamb who is slain. That's why they say to him who sits on the throne and under the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So if you believe, 
You'll see the glory of God. So we need to believe God can do all things. We need to believe that he hears. And we need to believe him, not our words. So when we pray, we don't want to be a bunch of nags, do we? And yet we want to be persistent. How can you be persistent in your prayers without nagging? By trusting. If you look to the pattern of Scripture and you pray for the things Paul prayed for, and you pray for the things Jesus prayed for, and you pray pray the prayers of the Psalms, you find that the consistent prayers that they had were not for their own comfort or an easy life, but for spiritual blessings, spiritual growth and maturity, a relationship with Almighty God, a friendship that maintains reverence is what we need with God. If your prayer life feels like you are nagging God to do something for you, You need to work on the relationship. Just as nagging in our human relationships is a sign of an imperfect relationship, a nagging prayer life is an indication of our relationship with God needing work. And if this is the case, it isn't because he's failed to do his part, but that we haven't fully trusted him in doing our part. If we love someone and we know what they love, and we encourage them to do the thing they love, will they not be glad to do it? If you knew an artist who delighted in painting, and you knew that painting gave them great joy, and when they painted, their anxiety faded away, and you said to them, hey, please go do some painting. You love to paint. Why don't you go paint? Do what you love to do. How much more will God save sinners, which is his delight? How much more, if we love God, can we with great passion and love for him and love for his glory say to him, Lord, please save. There is a word to cry out to God from Scripture that means please save or save now. Do you know the word? It is Hosanna. Hosanna, please save. In your prayers for the lost, perhaps you may cry out to God with the person's name in your heart and on your lips, Lord, Hosanna, please save. Please save my son. Please save my neighbor. Please save my coworker. Please save the person I'm having trouble with. Please save. Hosanna. Let's practice a little logic together for a moment. If God loves to save... And if he desires for us to be part of his gospel work, then why would we not pray to him to do that which he is delighted to do? If we would be encouraged that our loved ones could be saved and we want to encourage them to do something wholesome, if we want to encourage them to do the thing they love to do, Why wouldn't we ask God to save those around us when he loves to save lost people? Really? If you know someone loves going golfing and you say, go go golfing, please, what are they going to do? Oh, well, that's a great suggestion. I'd love to go golfing. I'm going to go golfing. If you tell your Lord and Heavenly Father, please save, when he delights to do that, will he not answer those prayers? Most of us would like to have faith that moves mountains or to call a dead man out of the grave, but until we put into practice the kind of diligence that Jesus put into his relationship with the Father, should we, not, we should not presume to have that kind of power ourselves. 
We can't expect to have the power Jesus had in having his prayers answered if we don't have the habits Jesus had in the prayer life he had. We know that James said that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And in the same verse, he's talking about confessing sins to one another. We need to confess our sins to one another so that we can make the righteous prayer. We need to hear the word of Christ to have the faith that believes that our sins will be forgiven. And we need to work hard on our relationships to make it stronger. So what can you do about this message? Well, you, like Martha, must believe to see the glory of God. You must believe that your prayers are heard. And we must believe that answered prayers are not because we strung together the right words, but because of the power of the one we pray to. And to get to that belief... You must provide yourself opportunities to hear the word of Christ, to read the word of Christ, and allow his spirit to minister to you in everything. I'm going to close with a time of prayer since we're kicking off our 40 days of prayer. And when we pray on Sunday mornings in our prayer meeting before uh, D6, uh, we use the ACTS model. And the ACTS model is this. It's just an acronym to help you remember things that are important to Include in your prayers adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication or making requests. So as I pray, would you pray with me? And we're going to pray these things and ask God to do the work we've been asking him to do. Not in a nagging way that if he would just, if we just pray enough times, he'll finally have to do it so he won't have to put up with us anymore. We're not going to pray that way. We're going to pray with the full expectation that our Heavenly Father who loves to save people is going to do it in our midst. Does that sound good? So let's pray together using this Acts model. First we pray adoration. Lord, we adore you. We thank you for the salvation. You are an amazing Savior. You're omniscient, all-powerful. You're all, you all, you know everything. You, you've seen from the end to the beginning. You've set a plan in motion to save the souls of the lost. And it's an amazing salvation, Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and might and glory forever and ever. And Lord, we pray confession as well. We confess, Lord, that we often lack the zeal that we should have towards the lost and seeing them come to Christ. We confess, Lord, that as John even said in his video, there's many opportunities we, we miss out on and we walk away and think, I should have said more. Lord, we confess that we often fall short of your command to do the Great Commission. And Lord, thanksgiving prayers, we thank you for giving us this new opportunity to right the ship of our own Uh, track of evangelism. Lord, I thank you that there are people in the congregation already that you have been working in their heart and changing their heart to give them a greater desire to see the lost come to Christ. And so we thank you for the opportunity, Lord. We thank you that you've promised that you will work in and through your word when it is presented. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us many opportunities to share that word with others and also to bring them to our church to hear it proclaimed on Sundays as well. We thank you for that, Lord. Now we ask you, Lord, in prayers of supplication or request, we ask you, Lord, 
Many names have already been written down. Family names, co-workers, neighbors, friends. Lord, you, you've put the names of many people on the hearts of your church at Oasis. Lord, I pray with them. I pray with each one and the names they've written down that you would do a supernatural work even now in the hearts of those that we will hopefully approach later with invitations to come to church and opportunities to share the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us a spirit of boldness and confidence in your word that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ knowing that it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Lord, do a supernatural work in each heart, I pray. And Lord, I pray as well if there's anyone here that has not yet come to fully believe in you. And we know if we don't fully believe in you, then we'll never see the glory of God. If there's someone here, Lord, who still needs to respond to your gospel call, would you give them an extra tug this morning as you draw them to yourself? We ask this, Lord, in the precious name of him who shed his blood on that cross the worthy Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. And as we continue to uh, worship in our tithes and giving, would you continue to pray with me?